Are you ready to become awesomer? Hello everyone, this is Umar Hamid, your host, and welcome to the No Limit Selling Podcast, where industry leaders share their tips, strategies, and advice on how to make you better, stronger, faster. Get ready for another episode. Hello, everyone. Today, I have the privilege of having John Saunders here. He's the optimizer. And John, I need optimizing. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Umar. It's great to be here. So you've got this book coming out that that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter who you are, where you are, we're always looking for that edge. And how do we optimize ourselves and our organizations? So tell me about the book. Sure. First of all, I'll just say that my inspiration for it was thinking back over my almost 25 years working on Wall Street. And I just saw so many people that had this incredible ability, but it it was often left hidden for years. And what I found was largely they were maybe a little bit complacent and oftentimes more afraid to kind of break out of their shell. I think there's a variety of reasons why they are afraid, some internal, some externally driven. But what I found is if you can help unleash that gift and, and help them think in this optimizer mindset, it can really deliver powerful results for an organization. Absolutely. You brought up the word fear and fear is the enemy of success. On one hand, I'm going to ask you a question and answer it as best as you can. Sure. That what is, if we have love on one side, what's the other side of that coin? What's the counter emotion, do you think, of love? Interesting. Now I feel like I'm uh, at the uh, therapist's office here. Uh, (laughs) uh, I suppose hate. One would think that. And uh, in my worldview, hate is a symptom. And I think what's on the other side of that is fear. Fear is the counterpart of love. And then we act out in ways from fear of not committing or whatever. And the reason I bring that in is this, is that when we go to do things to be salespeople or leaders or whatever, what gets in the way is fear as well. And so it's just kind of interesting that fear is the heart of the human condition that stops us from having those relationships we want with people we care about, as well as showing up in this world in a powerful way. That's a really interesting point. I appreciate that. But I, and I also would not limit it just to fear. I think there's a few other major emotional factors that I, I talk about in the book as well. Um, well, tell us about those. What are the other ones? Sure. Uh, to, to list them all out, fear, loss, uncertainty, and, and a really powerful one uh, that I would argue Brene Brown has made the most famous in shame. And if I could just uh, share my thoughts on that for a minute, one of the things I found in, in my research and just experience over the years was there's two elements of shame. And shame is a very powerful force that will keep, people will stop, they will not do something because they're afraid of feeling ashamed. You tried something, you took a risk, it didn't work. Now you have to go to your boss, your spouse, your partner, what have you, and tell them you failed and people feel ashamed. That's one, that's internally driven. There's a second one that hasn't gotten a lot of press in in my view, and that is external. And when you have to lead a big change initiative, and I saw this in my own life, where Mm -hmm. you're trying to drive change and the messaging on that has to be critically, is, is critically important. You can't come in and say, hey, Umar, everything you've been doing the last 10 years has been a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that happens. That's how people frame change sometimes, as opposed to, hey, there's external forces changing our industry, and we need to have, well, we've done great things for 10 years, 20 years, whatever, but there's these external forces taking place that we need to address, and therefore we need to evolve. I mean, think about the few messages. So I'm going to push back on the shame thing because what you said, I think, is absolutely true, that shame can be so debilitating that it stops us dead in our tracks. So there is another gentleman out there. His name is Don Schmenka, and he's written a bunch of books. One of them is called The Code of the Executive. 
and he found a manual, a training manual for the samurai. Interesting. Because, you know, you join the samurai and you do all the training and you look cool in your ponytail and you got the big sword. <laughs> and then everything is like amazing until you go into battle. Because when everything is just training, you can be pretty brave. But when you go into battle, there's other samurai there. And a lot of people, newbies, uh, will run away from the fight. And what they use is shame as a motivator to bolster courage. That it would be so shameful to run away in battle. And they use shame as a way to empower people to be more courageous. Which is kind of, it just depends. That's leadership, right? Like how do you use the emotional landscape to create the change that you want? Can Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, so I think the samurai story is probably hundreds of years old, right? Oh, yeah, ancient. <laughs> so I think maybe there's a more modern way to, to get through that. I, I would agree. I'm a big believer. You know, I ran a sales team for many years that, you know, posting the numbers, the, the scoreboard, if you will, is, is sort of one way, I guess, to bring about shame in a not so subtle. And for some people, when they're at the bottom of the board, they get crushed. And other people are like, damn it, I'm number three. I need to be number one. And that shame gives them the power to move forward. So absolutely. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when you go to business school, they teach you all about these are the processes, these are the strategies. And that human element, what your book's about, is not really taught or taught well at all. And you've been speaking to a lot of people, leaders out there in the space. And Philip Holt was one of the people that you spoke to. So tell us about Philip, his company, and his story. Sure. Uh, Philip was a guy that uh, early years started out working as in a kitchen. That was one of his first jobs. He had a big passion for food and learned very early on that sooner or later, something is going to go wrong. And if you're his, this, the restaurant you have to work in was a owner operator. So the, you know, the guy cooking in the kitchen owned the place. And he taught him very early on that something's going to go wrong, right? You're going to run out of this. You're Girls oh, yeah. break down or whatever. And you've got to be able to adjust on the fly. So he taught very early. Was He learned very early on this whole idea of, you know, if the heat's too big in the kitchen to, to get out, if you will. And he embraced it. And he figured out ways to adapt on the fly. And then he took that knowledge and applied it to a, a corporate life. Uh, he worked. He went on to work at EA Sports for a number of years and then uh, landed a job actually most recently as a, running a big game studio at Microsoft. So did he tell you about one of his failures? Like this was going wrong and this is what I learned and this is how I transformed it? Yeah, he, uh, he's in the midst of, between EA and Microsoft, he worked, uh, he actually started the company and raised $9 million to start a company, a, a game company and data analytics company. And a, a big lesson he learned through that was when you're starting a company and building a business, you have to have focus. And what he attempted to do early on was run really two companies, a data analytics company and a game company. And one of the early investors he, he tried to get money from that didn't that he didn't get money from said, You've, you have to pick one or the other. And he said, you know, I'm right. I've got this, you know. And uh, sooner or later, he had to shut down one of those businesses. And eventually, they didn't quite get it where it needed to be. And they, they had to shut it down. But I think the big lesson he took away from that was knowing that sometimes you do have to pivot. And it's just not always a, a perfect path forward. So not only pivot, but it's so hard to focus because it's easy for me to tell you, Hey, John, you need to focus. But when you've got like your baby and you can help like uh, small companies and annuity funds and this, it's like, no, no, they all need me and I can be, and I need to do this. And we talk ourselves into that stuff that we'd never let a friend do that. But somehow we delude ourselves that we're so awesome. We can do it. You know, uh, the worst lies uh, we tell Umar are the ones we tell to ourselves, aren't they? Absolutely. <laughs> 
So going back to the early part of the story, one of the things that really turns me on is where you have someone who's a chemist and they know, you know, when you have a catalyst, you do this and this happens, then they go into leadership and they take a concept from chemistry and they bring it into another discipline and it just shines and brings a new thought process or insights into the new profession. And what you described about him being uh, in the kitchen and being prepared for any disaster and bringing that mindset and that confidence to his leadership role is how we move industries forward, right? Having that ability to adapt. I mean, right? I think it was Darwin that said, it's not the strongest who survive, but the ones that are most can most use, flexible, most yeah. can adapt. And that, he's a great example of that. For, for Brilliant. Sure. So you had also spoken to the folks at uh, Motley Fools. So tell us about how did you get connected and uh, what was that interview like? Sure. Uh, a, one of my uh, mentees actually uh, was pursuing a career at that firm he met the founder, one of the co-founders through that process, and I met him through that. He had the, the co-founder come in and do a presentation to uh, to our business school program uh, that he's in that I'm a mentor for. So I met the gentleman through that, of course. It was on Zoom because of the world we live in today, but I reached, nice. I reached out to him afterwards and said, boy, I, I knew a little bit about the Motley Fool story, but after hearing it through that, I thought, man, this, this is a perfect fit for the story. And you know, what was the story? You can sort of, they started back in the 90s as just kind of this you know, there's a better way to invest in stocks. Wall Street is this big machine, these big Goliaths, and they just thought, man, there's got to be a way, better way to get this done that's more fun, that's not so suit and tie and this kind of thing. So you think about the name in and of itself, right? The Motley Fool. What is the Motley Fool famous for, right? They went. They were the ones that sort of dressed goofy, entertained everybody, but more importantly, stroke, spoke truth to power. Spoke the truth to the king, right? And power. And so these guys very much... Uh, both the co-founders are English majors and love Shakespeare. That's basically how they came to the name. And they wanted to be that speaker of truth to Wall Street, the Goliath of Wall Street. And boy, have they done it. And they've evolved over, gosh, 20, since 93, 94, they launched. They started out on an AOL chat room, believe it or not. Uh, wow. Is, I mean, who, does anybody even know what those are anymore? Remember what those were? <laughs> so what was the lesson that they shared with you? Like, this was our lesson that we learned. What was that lesson? Yeah. Th what they figured out was, one, you've got to make work fun and engaging. People don't want to, people spend most of their lives at work. Why do they want to show and be told what to do and, and, you know, not have a little bit of fun? And what they landed on after a number of years was an extraordinary mission that drives what they do every single day. And it's so simple and so prophetic. We want to make the world richer, smarter, happier. And think about that. They, don't, they didn't say rich, smart, and happy, right? Richer, happier, smarter. And so there's no end to it. And so what it does for their people is it helps them live in this constant state of innovation or optimization, as I like to call it, in that if, you know, if, if you're ever thinking about trying this or doing that or try, taking on a new challenge, you know, is it going to fulfill our simple mission? And it makes decision-making very simple for people, but it also gets them to constantly think, how do I do this? How do I help the world become richer, smarter, happier? Brilliant. As you were interviewing these folks for your book, a lot of times by interviewing other people, we discover things about ourselves. On this writing a book and some of those conversations, what did you discover about yourself? Uh, I really like that question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, you know, when I went into starting this book, it, I actually started out, with a, a message around innovation. And what mm -hmm. the big discovery for me was, I haven't really been innovating my whole life and career. I've been optimizing. And so, but I didn't, I never recognized that until I started to talk to all these folks and realized that that was really the word I've been centering my life's work around. 
that was a big discovery for me. It sounds simple, but it completely changed the direction of the book in many ways. Brilliant. So as you look out into the world, what's one of the techniques you could share with the listeners to entice them to get your book to optimize their lives that they could use right now? Sure. The biggest element of, of the, the, the whole book is really the principles that make the optimizer mindset. It, it's being vulnerable. It's being a problem solver. It's being a cu customer centric and it's having an extraordinary excellent focus on excellence. And after talking to all these folks in, in my work over the 25 years or so, those are really the key elements I found. And so as a leader, one, you need to try to find people with those skills and seek them out in the interview process. And as a contributor, you need to try to think about and develop these skills to, to really, uh, I believe, have this mindset and, and unleash your gifts or unleash your true potential to the organization and drive results. So tell me about uh, word vulnerable that you used. In our lexicon in business, we give it like we talk about it, but nobody ever practices it because it's seen as weakness. So tell me about one of the people you interviewed or in your life where you were vulnerable, ended up saving the day. I'll tell you. As a, so I was a salesperson for many years for, uh, for this firm I worked for on Wall Street, and then I was a leader for many years. Uh, so I'll never forget this. I'm sitting in the sales meeting. I've been in a sales field, field sales guy for six or seven years, had a great run, but I, I had kind of plateaued flattened out. And we're sitting at the award ceremony at the end of the year. And I remember sitting there anxiously and thinking, oh man, is it, is it me this year? And they announced the person's name and it wasn't me. And it hit me right then and there, Umar. I wasn't even in the running. And up until that very moment, I was deluding myself that I was. I remember just this, I can actually feel the chills again, right? <laughs> Coming back to me telling this story again, this was 10 years ago. I was so mad that I got my, let myself do that and get so complacent. And so the guy that won the big award for the company that year, the one guy gets the biggest award the company gave out, I went right to him afterwards. And I said, did you do something differently this year to help kind of change the complexion of your business? And he said, yes. I went to my best relationships and asked them for feedback on how I operate and how I could improve how I operate. And I thought, holy cow, who does that? Yep. And I said, please send me your survey that you created. I tweaked it marginally and I set off on the same mission. And I'll tell you what, you want an amazing start, stop, continue exercise, go out and survey your best relationships on what it's like to work with you. So I did it. I, I literally got a survey within a week, went out and started executing the survey within days. And in fact, the next year I won the same award he did. It was an unbelievable turnaround. That is brilliant. Thank you for sharing that because at the end of the day, uh, we are so scared to ask that question because what if they say, we don't like this. And the only person that we're scared of is how we're going to feel. Because if they're feeling it, they're already feeling it anyway. And a lot of times we get trained that, you know, don't show weakness. I was doing a training and there was a couple that were in the training that were just not getting the results. So my area of expertise is how do you change mindset? And they were working on a problem and they just weren't getting the results. And it's like, are you sure? Like what's going on? They said, oh, we didn't want to actually tell people our real issues. So we just made up an issue so we wouldn't look so weak because we need we have this demeanor we need to put on for people. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. I never want to go through life where I'm like pretending to be someone I'm not. Do I still do it? Once in a while? Absolutely. I catch myself. By the way, that's why God invented spouses, to keep you in line and tell you the truth. <laughs> right? I mean, so, I, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Yeah, you were about to say something. I was going to say, so to your point about this truth, this moment of truth, it is, there were some painful moments in these interviews I conducted, but the key is framing these interviews. 
and you sit down with the top client and say, hey, in this case, a real story, one I did, Mike, I said, Mike, I really, I've been so impressed with how you and your business partners operate and run your business over the years. I want to get better at what I do and how I can engage with you and help you grow your business. I'd love to get your feedback on how I operate so I can improve. And that framing completely changes the complexion of the conversation because instead of just asking them this sort of awkward questions about yourself, now they, now you're complimenting them. You're deepening the relationship and I would argue changing the complexion of it forever. And in fact, it did. Uh, and I'll never forget that very individual asking him, Mike, and I remember, I, I, God, I can remember this so vividly. Mike, what's the best thing about working with my company? And I, I remember thinking to myself, this is where he tells me how amazing I am. Can I tell you something? And? He did not mention my name once in the next two, two or three sentences that came out of his mouth. And I was blown away, blown away. And when I, re I remember driving home, uh, driving out of his office that afternoon and realizing, holy cow, this is what your brand is, right? Your brand is what people say about you and you're not around, to quote Jeff Bezos. And at that moment, brand became very clear to me and that I needed to manage it better with him and all the things I'd done with him and his team over the years and make him more aware of it because it was always in my head. I knew I did it, but it clearly wasn't that evident to him. And it, it was a great brand awareness moment for me. So John, when you're writing this book, somewhere in the process of writing this book or thinking about it, it's like, I want to write a book that when someone reads it, they do X. Like, what is the end result you're looking for? For let's say 20% of the people that read it, if they got this, I know I did something amazing. What do you want them to get? What do you want them to do? Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's, this book ultimately is, is for both leaders and contributors, but I would argue for contributors that eventually want to become leaders because it's helping you build that mindset. What I hope people can do from getting this book is first build trust. That's a huge part of the story from, from uh, making this all happen. I don't think any of my book happens without building trust. There's a whole chapter dedicated to that. Um, but two, then going out and building this process, this system to unleash all of these gifts that your team members have and make them feel safe to execute on them and, and, and leverage them. Because if you don't create that trust and that safety, it's very difficult for people to break out of their, their box. You know, your top performers are already in that mindset, but they're not the usual folks. It's the other end of the, you know, the middle and end of the bell curve that I think need more help. And as a leader, I believe with a few of these stage steps and processes I've put out, you can help make that happen. Brilliant. Because I think at the end of the day, that is what we all want. And a lot of people that work for corporations that might actually enjoy going into work do not feel safe. And But what I mean by feeling safe is if they think something's going wrong, they don't feel comfortable saying, hey, I think we're going in the wrong direction because they don't want to be seen as the bad person or be attacked or whatever. And if you can create an organization where people feel safe saying, hey, I think we're going in the wrong direction, then you and I can have a conversation and I realize, oh, no, we're not. Everything is okay. And it's settled right there and then. Or you realize John's doing something wrong. And you go, I had no idea. Let's fix that. And what I'm describing there seems like common sense, but in most corporations, that simply does not happen. What happens is I go to my friends in the company and say, can you believe what John's doing? <laughs> they go, I can't believe he's doing that. And it creates these silos and poor communications and makes us slower than we are. So hats off to you for releasing this book. Uh, John, it's going to be available everywhere. Yeah, it's going to be online in uh, uh, December 7th, the week of December 7th. Just around the corner and go out there, get this book and drop John a line. Let him know how uh, this book helped you build a stronger organization. John, thanks so much for being on the show. 
Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results. 